0: questions about food and diet and when you look at a lot of the genetic tests that are out there a lot of them claim things like uh, you know nutrigenomics uh, your genetics will help you know what to eat and what we found is that there's nuances and details that are really important from the genes that are not about what to eat like simply how do I metabolize what do I metabolize and they support thinking Uh, beyond that and it's very important to understand these because you go from this probability based of I'm going to feel 60 to 70 percent good to this certainty of this is 100 percent what I need and what are those things are things like mood and behavior how do you even perceive you know when you're being told to do something when you're being told to comply with something how do you do that how is your brain wired and if you don't think about that wiring in the context of you know diet then it may affect what your net result is. The actual food that you're eating, you know, considering what's in it versus what um, what you think it is. Meaning that when you go buy a piece of broccoli, is it actually broccoli? You know, what did it actually take to get it to that? So, can you actually eat yourself to health with the food that you're buying? what does it actually mean to buy something off the grocery store shelf so things like that that need to be considered beyond just a simple you should eat more greens because of some gene so let's dive into that and i'm going to navigate this through the questions you've asked and bring it back to some of the thoughts that i had so the one big question that kept coming over and over and over and over again was why are you telling me to not eat bread when my ancestors lived off of it. If it's a genetic thing, well, don't I have my ancestors genes? You know, we talked to people from the Middle East that said, hey, my ancestors used to eat, you know, uh, like a naan from India or Pakistan, and, or my, my European ancestors used to bake bread regularly. Why are you telling me that my genetics say I can't? That makes no sense. So let's dig into that. It starts with the assumption that when you use the word bread, going back to the broccoli example that I gave, that you're even talking about the same thing—the thing that you're eating versus what they're eating. Let's start with even—is it the same thing? So, the the DNA that we have, your genes, are two hundred fifty thousand years old, meaning that go back that amount of time, and we look the same as those people. That's in and around the time. Where there was some change and we became who we are today, 250,000 years ago. It's only in the last 10,000 years that we've actually had sort of uh, agriculture in the modern way you see it today. You know, organized industrial, well, industrial came a little later, but organized agriculture, farming as we know it. Prior to that, people lived off the land. Uh, there weren't that many cities, Uh, things were a lot more organic as they were in whatever jurisdiction you were. So things changed around 10,000 years ago. Now keep in mind your DNA is pretty much the same as it was 250,000 years ago. So we're talking about when we talk about ancestors it's not enough to go back to grandma or to great-grandma which is what we can remember and the stories we hear versus that 250,000 year old grandma who is still your relative and whatever they ate for the next 240,000 years before uh, the 10,000 years of farming as we know it started. Those are your ancestors. Those are the genetics you've inherited, the legacy that you're living off of. So you have to ask what did they eat to truly answer the question. So. 10,000 years ago is when farming sort of became as it is today. Um, And we started to see (laughs) of the four or five grains that people ate, we even see them sometimes marketed as ancient grains, truly ancient, because that's what our real ancestors ate. We started to have to think about grains differently. It wasn't so much about here's what grows, so let's pluck it and eat it. It's here's what's Industrially more appor- appropriate as we start to farm in a more civilized manner. So we start to think about other things like what resists winter? What resists pesticides as we move ahead a few thousand years? What resists sort of animals and pests and rats and these types of things? And so we start to focus on the grains that are resilient as opposed to the grains that make us feel good. Then you fast forward a little further. And you start to experience breads that are a little more glutinous. They're softer, fluffy. I can assure you that if you look at bread from 250,000 years ago to a, a couple thousand years ago, even 500 years ago, it was like a brick. It was full of protein. It was very nutritious and it was dense like a brick. That was bread up until a few hundred years ago where we started to see stuff that was a little more glutinous, soft. And that soft experience was akin to luxury, right? It was luxurious, so everyone wanted it. It's it's fun. Why people, if you ask a kid, do you want the you know ancient grain uh, spelt flax bread or do you want the white wonder bread? They'll grab the white wonder bread if they were given the choice with no consequence because it's fun, easy, soft, luxurious all the things that, you know, people lean towards. And so we started to see more of this. We started to see more soft, white, fluffy, glutinous bread. We get to where we are today, where we move away from literally the four or five grains that used to make up bread for tens of thousands of years to now 10,000 plus grains that have been designed for again their industrial benefit as opposed to their health benefit what lasts longer what lasts through the winter what rats don't eat what can resist the pesticides and chemicals that get sprayed on them so they dry so they can be stored in grain silos these are the considerations that determine what we eat not what's the healthiest for us then of course there's a gluten there's the soft, glutinous, fluffy, white stuff that we want, which is the majority of bread we see today, which is not what bread looked like even a few hundred years ago. Forget about 10,000 years ago. And so you start to unpack the question a little more. Why are you telling me not to eat bread when that's what my ancestors ate? Because it's not what they ate. When you go to the store and you pick up that loaf, it does not at all resemble what has been eaten for the last 249,000 years. And why all of a sudden is gluten a problem? You know, this sort of, is it a fad or a trend that, oh, I have a gluten problem? No, it didn't exist in bread until recently. Gluten wasn't what bread looked like. It was dense. It was, it was literally proper bread. I think it was Andrew wheel who said that if you want to know if bread is healthy for you or not, squeeze it. And if you can actually squeeze it, it's not healthy. You should not be able to squeeze it. It should be dense, and and if you look at, you know, an ancient grain, dense bread, you'll see, it will say it has five to 10 grams of protein per slice, which, wow, that's weird. I can have that as a protein source versus your Wonder Bread, which will say like half a, a gram or maybe one because of the constituents, what makes it up are very different. So that answers your question of why the insulin response and the starch metabolization genes that you now have do not allow you to eat what now exists because your 250,000 year old genes were not designed to eat that highly accelerated response to what bread now looks like based on industrialization of food. And then you extend that into things like rice. You know, I can't tell you how many people of South Asian and Asian backgrounds where we tell them, sorry, you should stop eating rice. And they say, what are you talking about? That was my ancestral food. And you, a genetic analytical company, is telling us that the analysis you found is that I can't eat rice? There's something broken in your system. Well, the truth is that, again, rice today is not what rice was. Rice as a whole food, when you take it out of the ground, off the rice paddy and you harvest it, it has a hull. It has an outer shell. That hull is where all the fiber and nutrition and, you know, uh, healthy oils and fats and minerals, they're all in the hull. The inner kernel, that white grain that we actually eat, is just pure sugar. If you look at the molecular structure of it and you break it down, a spoonful of white rice is really the same as a spoonful of sugar. And that's not an exaggeration. You can study the biochemistry of this. It's chemically, molecularly the same. Why? Well, the gift of Mother Nature or God or evolution, whatever you believe in, is that food as a whole is designed in perfection. The rice in with the hull, which has all the fiber in it, counteracts the insulin response and the sugar response of eating that internal kernel. So it was designed as a whole perfect, which is why your ancestors who lived off of rice did not have diabetes, did not have an insulin spike, did not have a crash where they had to sit on the couch an hour after eating a plate of rice because they weren't eating a plate of what molecularly looks like sugar. It was again with a hull, what you now see as brown rice, which is kind of an exotic food, uh, that is the way rice was meant to be eaten. You're meant to eat it with the fiber, which allowed you to deal with the sugar that you were eating. So you got the benefit of the glucose, the fuel in that sugar without the insulin response, without the you know inflammation and that load to your body that eventually leads you down this path of type 2 diabetes, which so many Asian and South Asian people now have because they don't realize, again, that when they say my ancestors ate rice, well, what is rice? Is it, in fact, the same thing as what you're eating? No. And here, the amazing thing about all this, what happens to that hull? Why is it removed? Well, for our industrial world, that hull is much more likely to rot than the inner kernel, which can be dried. You buy rice dry and then you boil it and you cook it. So that dry rice doesn't really rot. The hull does, and so it's removed during processing, right? And when it's removed, guess what happens to it? It is bundled up and packaged as a supplement for people that are diabetic because it is pure fiber and nutrition. It is the thing that you're meant to be eating when you eat your rice. So when that happens, all of a sudden you're removing the thing that you needed to be able to, in a healthy way, eat that rice. And it's now still known that that's what it's for. The powers that be know that. And so it's now packaged up and sold back to the person that was made sick with the rice as a supplement to cure them. When if you ate the whole food as Mother Nature designed it in the first place, you wouldn't have had the problem to begin with. And so understanding the genetics of this process of starch, metabolization and insulin response, is one thing but then understanding what food really is really will only get you to the right outcome and you have to start to ask these questions what did this thing look like ancestrally not grandma because grandma was already part of industrialization what did it look like before that so some people asked uh, I was surprised how much this question came up but about poultry that they're getting conflicting information about eating eggs and chicken and they keep seeing stuff saying eggs are not healthy chickens not healthy so what's the truth there so again i can only answer this from the sort of genetic and evolutionary perspective what has actually happened uh is a is a chicken healthy or not well it's a great lean source of protein um, were we meant to eat it did we eat it ancestrally not so much actually it's a little known fact that chickens were industrialized only in the last few generations it wasn't really a, major source of protein for most civilizations Uh, it's a newer food and the industrialization of chicken um, which you know um, again happened I would say turn of the last century uh, is a new phenomenon chickens were for eggs you had your chicken in your backyard and it would constantly produce a, a a free source of protein for you and a very healthy source of protein with a lean protein and really healthy fats and some people would argue if you went back to what things used to be and we're going to talk about eggs that a one egg was enough to sustain you for the day like the amount of nutrition that you would get in that egg obviously you know if you're working out and doing different things you need a lot more uh, but there's people there's articles that talk about that not the egg that you buy today but what used to be and so people didn't kill the chicken. The chicken was there for the egg. If it did get killed, it was once in a while as a luxury to eat, you know, to celebrate something. Let's, let's eat the bird. And then we have to wait for another one to grow up and then we have more eggs. So what's going on there? Well, in chicken, it's one of the highest sources of an high, highly inflammatory insult called linoleic acid linoleic acid is not something that we're supposed to be consuming. Uh, You find it in certain seeds and nuts. Uh, You've heard of omega-6s, so omega-3s are great. You want omega-3s, great for your brain, your heart. Uh, Omega-6s, on the other hand, you want to avoid. And akin to that, linoleic acid is something that you want to avoid. Chickens, industrial chickens, the way we eat them today, are chock full of linoleic acid. What can that potentially cause? Things like cancer, poor brain health, poor heart health, inflammatory load throughout the body. So it's very important if you're going to be eating poultry to be very picky. Of all the animals that you eat, You know, for those of you that are sort of omnivorous or eat meat, you have to be very particular about getting organic chicken, free range organic, uh, and reduce the, the load. It should not be a staple for you. Uh, because it was not what we ancestrally did. Linoleic acid, whether organic or not, is present. Of course, in the more industrial where they eat garbage, you're going to eat, you're also going to be eating more garbage. You you, you know, the chicken is what it eats. And so you eat what the chicken ate. And unfortunately, for the most part, they're eating garbage. And so that's what you're also consuming. But there's certain places where you can go and do your work. It's worth your health to do the research wherever you live locally where that local farm is, where you can get that organic, free-range, healthy uh, food. So why then are the eggs a problem? Well, again, if you you go around to a fast food place and you get a meal that has a hard-boiled egg, you know, I recently went to Starbucks and got what they call their protein box. And when I cut the egg open, I actually didn't eat it. Because when I looked at it, I knew what it was. Versus when I go to a local store here in Toronto called Healthy Planet where I'm able to get eggs from a proper source. They look like what eggs are supposed to look like, meaning the yolk is a deep, almost orange color, highly nutritious. The egg is large in size. uh, And the flavor profile versus the bland dead food that I was getting in that box, completely different. Because what that chicken ate in order to produce that egg was very different than what that industrial chicken ate to produce that industrial egg. And so although you can look at the macros on the side of the box, it's made up of this much protein, this much fat, this much etc. Are you getting the nutrition? All the things that aren't listed? You know, the, the work that it takes to analyze at that level what you're supposed to be getting from this food, the things that aren't listed, you know you're not getting in fact you're getting an inflammatory insult because there's other things coming along in that food that you weren't supposed to get from it and so that question of why do you see all these articles that eggs are harmful don't eat too many eggs well the truth again is what is an egg an egg is not an egg an industrial egg for an industrial chicken where you have a bland yellow yolk and it's small in size and it has no flavor i would avoid eating that if you can go to a place that is sourcing proper food where you crack that egg open and it has a deep orange yolk and it is full of flavor and it's sati- it causes satiety it makes you feel full because of the amount of nutrition in it continue doing that the argument over fat you know eggs being fatty the amount of calorie one egg is what 70 to 80 calories how much fat can you be getting out of 70 to 80 calories of the egg is fat, 70% is protein. Same thing with chicken. So you're not getting that much in terms of relative amounts. Yes, it's a fat dense food, but you're getting so little that you don't need to worry about that. And then that also depends what else you're eating with it. Yeah, if you're eating with a bunch of starch and sugar, then you're going to struggle metabolizing the fat because your body's leaning on the sugar. If you eat it on its own, you're not going to have a problem. You're going to plow right through it. So those are our thoughts on protein because that question came up a lot um, a lot of people asked about their relationship with food and their inability to stop eating what they eat you know they know they are it's not a question of the what like what am I supposed to do it's like the how I don't know how to do this I don't feel like i don't have the capacity so that comes down to neurochemicals and there's a few areas that we've identified where this is impactful so, one of them is we've spoken about serotonin many times. The people that are serotonin dysregulated that have a poor relationship with stimuli uh, in the moment, so they're more likely to respond to detail and stimuli, those people are more irritable. And if we, we've spoken to this earlier. If you compound, compound that with a, a high dopamine response where they're kind of naysayers, well, then it's going to be even more so. They're going to be even more irritable, more bothered by whatever negative stimuli is around them. The body doesn't like to be unhappy and stressed. You know, that's when cortisol is deployed and it's not good for you. And, you know, mitochondria is under stress and aging it sets in. And all of a sudden that stressful, irritable moment, your body wants to escape and get out of that. One of the easiest ways it knows how to do that is to go eat something tasty. Because when your serotonin is dysregulated, not, are you, not only are you more irritable, but you're also a lot more easily led to the positive stimuli. So you bounce between the two. It's not that you're more negative, it's just that you get drawn to stimuli, whether it's positive or negative. People notice the negative because it's more of a burden, but somebody tells you a joke and you'll be laughing within seconds right after the problem or somebody else may not be able to make that shift that easily. And so your body wants to make that shift. And food is the easiest way to do it. And it's more that soul food, that tasty, like you're going for the flavor. You're going for grandma's soul food, which is probably the more calorie dense you know, f- food that you're trying to avoid in the first place. The chips, the cookies, the ice cream. So this is a hidden source of calories that people don't even realize they're getting. We actually worked with a lawyer here in Toronto, high performing woman uh, who led her firm. Uh, And she just could not understand her weight issue. Hormones were fine. She exercised every day. You know, everything was good. She ate all the right foods. And we pinned it down to this one thing. This one thing where because she was a lawyer, she was constantly triggered by negative stimuli and problems. And her habit, her coping mechanism was to go by the pantry in her office and graze. Those calories that she just wasn't counting a cookie, a bag of Doritos, you know, some kind of muffin and that grazing that coping mechanism would make her feel good. So on one end she was solving a problem but on the other end she was creating a problem that she didn't even know was there. So it's very important for people that for who this resonates with and it sounds like you to keep a track of those bad days and see what your reaction is and the coping mechanism may not be food, it may be smoking, it could be anything but your body wants to feel good. The easy ways it knows to do that is food, but it could be something else. And just make a note of that and track. Am I adding another 500 calories that I'm not counting because of all the problems that lead me to lean on that soul food? The other area that we've seen that people aren't aware of, there's certain genes that actually determine your relationship with satisfaction. And you can actually believe that you need more or want more than you actually do so this is actually a great coping trait where if you come ancestrally from a place where food was scarce then your body is designed to want more when food is available you know we're meant to store fat and to be sort of resilient when there's lack of food there's also this desire to have variety so you get multiple sources of nutrition you know you get the minerals the vitamins the fibers the everything you need that for in order to get that you need variety so there's two genes that speak to these two buckets we first look at a gene that determines how well you deal with satiety so in the gut you literally the signal between your gut and the brain the FTO gene will determine how well you deal with that satisfaction. Do I need to go with for seconds or thirds? Do I stand by the pot and keep going? You know, after I'm done my dinner, my plate is empty, but now all of a sudden I'm at the stove scraping up everything and I just I can't get full. And there's certain people who you know who you are, where seconds and thirds is the norm. It's not that you need more food. It just takes longer for your gut to communicate with your brain. And so you need to actively and we're going to talk about the solutions. When I'm going to talk about both of the problems first. Then we'll get into the solutions because the solutions are kind of combined and speak to both. So there's a person for whom they can't get full. Then there's the person for whom they can't get satiety of the tongue. They can't get satisfaction. They've had their meal. They know they've had enough. They're full. But they need to go to the pantry to get that Dorito. That impactful flavor flavor punch. They need to go to the fridge or the the freezer to get that scoop of ice cream that wow like oh this is so good without that they can't have satisfaction there's one gene called mc4r that determines how well you do that the satiety of the mouth and for some people who are not doing well there they truly believe they need more and even the way they deal with their food if they're also serotonin dysregulated those picky eaters like no that needs to be toasted or uh, I don't know, cheese doesn't go on there. You know, they're very particular about what their food, the temperature, the, the texture, the combinations, you know, what goes in the oven, what goes in the microwave, what, what type of dessert matches the food you just ate. That person who's driven by the tongue is designed to need more flavors, more. It's, it's a survival mechanism. The more variety you have, the more you're gonna get, and so they're driven to seek that that variety. But in the modern world, where variety is probably more of a problem uh, than it is a burden, there's too much variety, and so you have too many options, and you eat too much. Well, this is where, you know, all of a sudden that person is going to be struggling on every meal because they have the options. So what's going on there? The funny thing is, we we've seen that there's certain populations, for example the Vietnamese and the Thai. These two populations are where we found they express genes in the way I've been describing. They don't have the ability to get satisfied and they don't have the ability to feel full. But then you think about the average Vietnamese or Thai person and you don't picture someone who's overweight. If you go to Vietnam, in fact, you picture petite people in general. It's not only about not overweight, but they're generally Quite petite. Same thing with Thai people in general for the most part. So what's going on there? Well, think about their food. When you have Thai food, you get that wow of the soupy, the crunchy, the salty, the sweet. There's some there's some meat flavor. There's some vegetable flavor. There's there's so much variety when you put it in your mouth. That wow, soul food kind of experience that you get when you eat that Thai food. That's why you don't need to eat as much because they're getting that satiety of the tongue they're driven towards that which is why their food tastes like that they evolved towards that and this is why everybody else experiences it the same way so th- the solution to this is twofold one is first of all for the person that's going for their seconds and thirds well you need to look at your plate logically and understand what fuel is actually required how many calories is an appropriate meal and how is that portioned out between your proteins your greens your carbs depending on your genetics are you a carb metabolizer or not are you a fat metabolizer or not what do your meals look like then you need to have your variety preemptively to prevent you from leaning on the pantry what does that mean well right after your meal's done you've eaten your fuel you know you've gotten what you needed but you're still not satisfied So that's where you create. If you can do it in your meal and cook Thai food flavor experiences daily, great. Do that and you'll find that you're not eating as as much. But most people can't do that. So what should you do? Well, you need to create that variety, which means something salty, something soupy, something crunchy, something sweet, which could mean taking a piece of chocolate, a piece of cheese, a cracker, uh, something like a grape, and creating all those flavor and texture profiles and wrapping them into a snack that is not you out of control grazing at the pantry, but you in very, very tight control, knowing exactly what you're ingesting, how many additional calories to create the satiety you need. So take the things that give you the flavor profiles you're leaning on. I do this, by the way. Doritos are not the best thing, and you don't recommend to people go eat a bag of chips. But I also know that if I don't get that intense flavor uh, sort of punch after my meal, it's very hard for you to walk away from the kitchen. And so I do take a few things that I don't eat in high volume that I know are not good for me, but two or three pieces of something to create that wow factor that I need to get satisfied. I do that because it's better for me to do that than to keep grazing all night because I'm not satisfied and I will do it. It's very hard to say no to it. So I create that satisfaction upfront and you can do the same. It's so simple to do it's, if it's preemptive and planned. So this is where you know understanding the root cause as opposed to, hey, my daily calorie count, well, why are those calories happening? It's These are the reasons why they could be happening. And all of a sudden you can get very specific about things. So now we look at, we talked about leaning on food as a coping mechanism, but the behaviors of eating are ultimately where I think people should start. Because when it comes to food, you can come up with a plan. You can be told what to do. You can go watch a YouTube video about the best practices. But how do you actually perceive? How do you actually deal with the risk and reward? You know, what is your relationship with the dining experience? That will dictate your success. And why some people do well with some things and some others don't. Uh, there's some people who they're much more likely to put a lot of effort into creating satisfaction which we just talked about which means that their cravings become a priority for them and it also becomes de- it, be- it almost becomes debilitating where that lunch break becomes the lunch hour because so much effort gets put into the food craving there's some people for whom again because the that dopamine fix comes from food that it will derail them from their work. When it gets an hour before lunchtime, all they're thinking about is lunchtime. Because the pleasure they're going to get from the food and the pleasure that they know is coming and their day that's structured around it because they have addictive tendencies, because their dopamine levels are so low, you're going to start to think about your food an hour before and it will derail you from your work. Then there's some people who have a, a tough time sticking to diet plans, you know, they, they know what they're supposed to do, but the compliance is the problem. Well, all of these things are different, and it goes back to sort of reward behavior, you know, emotional behavior, all the things we've talked about previously, and understanding how that applies in context. So, for that person, you know, who is more likely to avoid or lose out on the diet and jump onto something else or switch trends there's a couple different reasons and I just talked about them in what I just said there is that person that switches gears the comp is too fast and if you are that person that you find that ADHD best describes you and you know you don't have ADHD you don't have a, a, a medical condition but you just jump around you're triggered you move towards reward and pleasure well for you you're gonna not comply because you're going to jump onto the next thing the bandwagon jumper the next great thing you hear it's too irresistible for you to not try it because it sounds rewarding and with your relationship with reward it's hard for you to not try it out and which means you now give up on the thing you were already doing well at then there's a certain person who for whom the opposite is true and they're the naysayer and they learn experientially they need to go through it in order for it to be real to them they don't say yes on hearing it or seeing it. They say yes after being proven to them because their relationship with reward is the exact opposite. They're not reward seeking. They're more of a naysayer. And so their ability to comply is the diff- is the opposite. They actually need to push themselves through it enough to the point where they believe it and then they will comply. So you can see even these this one neurochemical of the pleasure and dopamine pathway can completely change how you deal with compliance and understanding that about yourself and be able to say, oh, here's what I'm supposed to eat, here's why I'm supposed to eat, here's what I'm supposed to eat. What does that mean to you as an individual? Very different. So then there's the people for whom, you know, I talked about earlier where the thought, you know, they're addicted to the thought of the food that's coming, to the meal that's coming and it derails them and distracts them from their work. Well, we also know that that addiction, that addictive behavior comes from that low dopamine profile. Well, it, and it all, if you combine that with the dysregulated serotonin on the bad day, it becomes even more compounded. And then they can't even think about anything other than food. And it derails them from their work. So that person has to have another coping mechanism. They need to bring that pleasure response up. They have to just take a break from their work and watch a two-minute video and start laughing and giggling about it and then get back to it. So understanding how to structure uh, things around you to create The behaviors you need starts with first understanding who you are. Um, So in terms of structuring, you know, what it takes to achieve the optimal result, I would recommend before doing anything that people truly study their mood and behavior. Try and understand your neurochemical pathways, who you are as an individual, what drives you, your decision-making behaviors, your compliance behaviors, uh, your reward-seeking behaviors, And then take that to build the plan that's right for you and understand that as you're going through the plan, how you're actually perceiving it. It's very important to do before you start any kind of change. So now another question that kept coming up was microbiome. Uh, There's a lot of buzz right now about the importance of the microbiome. We believe that the microbiome is the other half of personalization. Your genetics foundationally is who you are. Here's your human instruction manual that tells all your cells what to do. Your gut is where your immune system and most sort of health issues are rooted in uh, and w- will tell you more a snapshot in time. Here's where you're at. So here's what you're po- here's what's possible, your genetics. Here's what you're, where you're at because of the choices you've made. How do the two tie together? Well, the genetics of the gut, it's not the way we speak about the gut microbiome so the gut microbiome there's a lot of companies out there that are now sequencing all these bacteria strains that are in the gut that deal with either breaking down a food or you know all of that is now being analyzed it's still very premature there's certain things that are known very well there's a test called gi map that will tell you about things like candida things that are well studied and known but there's so much more that is not known that is being studied right now you can get some probability-based insights today, but we're still uh, a few years away from certainty. But what we do know is that in your gut, when you're eating, genetically, toxins that are entering your gut could be the root cause of a lot of diseases. And Toxins created by your gut microbiome could be a root cause of a lot of diseases. And this is where it's important to apply the functional thinking to the sequencing of our gut microbiome. It's one thing to know. Here's a list of what your gut microbiome looks like. But what does it mean for me when I, for example, eat sugar? Well, when I eat sugar, if I have a certain flora of bacteria in my gut, well, then all of a sudden that flora starts to flourish that feeds off of the sugar. But not only that, a certain other flora which I need is not doing well. Well, this flora that I'm not supposed to have flourishing, which I was not designed for, the excrement, literally just like any other living organism, it eats the sugar and then excretes the byproduct, is toxic, highly toxic. And if I'm populating this by eating foods that I'm not matched for, well, then all of a sudden I'm creating more of that toxic byproduct because the wrong gut flora is flourishing, creating the wrong type of excrement, excrement that I was does not designed to uh, deal with. And then all of a sudden you wonder why there's certain women that have things like fibromyalgia, where when they heal their gut, the fibromyalgia goes away. So they still had fibromyalgia, but the degree to which it expresses, the amount of pain being caused is compounded by that inflammatory load. And so genetics will tell you a couple things. Where can you expect to have a problem? Where is that gut mismatch going to lead to a problem? Because you're cellularly weak there. But also your ability to deal with that toxic insult being created. Meaning that in your gut, that sort of glutathione process binding onto toxins, sending those toxins to deliver, to metabolize and get rid of them. How well do you do that? And if you already know you're not doing so well there, then the problem of eating the wrong foods, which cause a toxic insult, which lead to an inflammatory state is going to be even more so compounded. Why is it that somebody can eat hummus and have no problem and somebody else eats hummus and they get bloated and they start to have joint pains and they get a little bit of brain fog? Well, there's chemicals that are used to dry the chickpeas to make them easier to ship and store, which you then end up eating and if you don't have the ability to detox those chemicals, well, all of a sudden they affect your gut microbiome, where your immune system is, and they seep into your blood as well and cause havoc everywhere else. So this is where you start to understand that the systems interplay. It's one thing to understand, here's a list of the certain bacteria that I have in my gut, here's what I look like. But functionally, here's what that means when I eat something or when I do something, here's the potential problems it can cause, and yes, having the wrong, wrong food mismatched my gut microbiome could then lead to an inflammatory insult like fibromyalgia could be the root cause of that catalyst that took me to, over the edge from asymptomatic to symptomatic why do i all of a sudden feel like this because you pushed yourself further the inflammatory load got further then there's a gene called FUT2 so FUT2 uh, actually will help un- help you understand the sort of type of bacteria you have in your gut. It's part so the genetics are part of what determines what bacteria you, you have. You know, you, you inherit your flora from your mother, you know, as you're passing through and your birth through the you know, through the vaginal cavity. You're literally layered in this microbiome as a child is sucking on you know the nipple to get the milk they're taking in the skin microbiome. And this is where you ask the question of, well, why is it that cesarean children or kids that weren't uh, breastfed often have different health outcomes? They have things like asthma, eczema, you know, these autoimmune type, uh, low immune uh, type experiences and conditions. Well, it's because they didn't populate their gut microbiome through the breastfeeding and through the the vaginal channel birth and they're not doing as well there. So, the immune system that's in the gut, they didn't adopt what they were supposed to adopt. And this is then where you start to look at the genetics to understand why they're having eczema, psoriasis, you know, migraines, different issues, and you can start to predict what problems they may have and where to intervene. You know, where do you support this child and where do you intervene? So, going back to fat 2 gene, it will determine what microbiome you have. It, it, it helps determine uh, that sort of flora. Uh, your parents will determine what you have because you inherited it from them. And then you can start to get a little, little more precise around, you know, why can't I eat beans and legumes and lentils? Well, my FUT2 gene is a suboptimal version, so I don't really produce the enzyme activity to break those things down, and they're going to be more of a load on me than they are on someone else. So our answer to gut microbiome is yes sequence it, understand it, learn about it, but if you don't combine it with the genetics, you're only getting part of the picture. And there's certain things where you're going to do really well. And there's certain things where the information you're given just doesn't work for you because you're only being told part of the story. There's a whole other half, which will get you to that certainty, which is where you want to be. So it's very important. And this is where we would say assessment is important. It's like, testing is not about illness testing is not about when i get sick i'm going to go get a blood test testing should be about prevention testing should be about understanding yourself and preventing disease or reversing it as opposed to just treating it and masking it and this is where all of what's now coming up these sequencing that used to be tens of thousands of dollars that are now a few hundred this is where everybody should be diving in so one last thought um, around fruits uh, and fructose because this question did come up a lot, which is, you know, people on the ketogenic diet, uh, people that are more paleo, people that are sort of low carb, uh, we keep getting asked this question about, well, should I eat fruit? Is fruit bad for me? You know, I've been told to eat bananas to recover from my training. Um, I've been told to eat certain fruits for the antioxidant value, to put them in my smoothie, Uh, but I don't want the sugar. So I can tell you, that I've recently started incorporating a lot more fruit uh, and I've actually been losing weight um, and part of the reason why I believe that there was an infl- inflammatory load that I'm dealing with because of the antioxidants and the, the sort of benefit of the nutrition and uh, vitamins that I wasn't getting uh, and I'm trying to get really high quality fruit um, but the sugar hasn't been a problem for me and I've tracked this the glycemic index there's certain things like grapes, for example, uh, that have a really high glycemic index and don't have what I'm going to speak of now, which which is really what you need to understand. Again, food was designed in perfection. Foods added, as it is, is in its natural state, if it's grown properly, without the introduction of chemicals, uh, in its, with the proper sort of bioavailability of nutrition in the earth, in the soil, the healthy soil where it's being grown. If things are done the way they were supposed to be done, food is perfect. The same thing is true of fruit, meaning that when I drink orange juice and I'm getting 40 grams of fructose sugar, I'm not also getting the fiber that's in the pulp, the meat of the fruit, which counteracts the same exact thing we said about the rice which would then, if you look at the difference between drinking fruit juice and eating a fruit, and you look what happens to your glycemic index, if you take a continuous glucose monitor and slap it on and track that for a few days, you'll be blown away. Food as it is, is perfect. And I, and I say this boldly, some people may not agree. But if you look at the difference between eating an orange and drinking orange juice, it's worlds apart. And this is where I say, yeah, go ahead and eat those berries. Eat the banana after your training. And know that banana has sugar in it, but the way it's structured, it was designed for perfection. So one thing to consider if you're truly worried about the sugar, while the more fruit ripens, the more sugar it has, you know, when the banana starts to get the brown and black spots on it, uh, the sugar index is about 50% higher at that point. The nutrition index is also higher, by the way you're actually supposed to eat it when it's fully ripe. But if it's truly a concern, well then just bring it back down to when it doesn't have the spots and you're getting less sugar. With but, but you're still getting the potassium and the fibers and some of the other things you like. But I would consider that the ripe state is the state you're meant to eating it because there's other things that the evolution of that ripening process that happen that you're not getting when the fruit is still raw. So simple advice as much as people say you know, keto, you know, and, and yes, it, it's, it's challenging to be in ketosis if you're getting sugars, uh, but ketosis is not something you should be in constantly anyway. It should be a cycle in and out, you know, and for some people, uh, fat re- uh, metabolization, especially saturated fats, genetically, you don't do it so well. So there's some people for whom fat metabolization is that struggle will actually lead to an insulin response problem, specifically in South Asians, Indian, Pakistani, Bangladeshi people, some Asian people as well. Fat will trigger an an insulin response just like sugar does. So you have to truly track and trace and assess on your own. But understand when it comes to things like fruit, eat it as the whole that it was meant to be. Do not make it. There's some people for whom it's the sort of the main uh, source of nutrition, which it shouldn't be. But if you eat some fruit before your meal you know activate uh, that enzyme activity which helps you actually digest your other food better so that's the other thing fruits will do for you if you start with that raw food raw fruit and that's that's the other great thing about eating fruit it's one of the few foods that we still eat raw in its natural state without it being sort of uh you know changed by cook by cooking it right so that's the other great benefit is you're eating it in its raw state as it is and the enzyme activity by eating fruit first that's triggered which allows better digestion better breakdown of food uh less bloating uh you're just going to overall feel better uh and it's not intuitive but there's some people for whom they want to start their meal with sugar well i wonder why that is why is it that the palate designs that desires that sort of sweet snack first. Is it because we were meant to eat fruit to kick up enzyme activity and get our system ready to metabolize the heavier things that are about to come? Is that genetically the way we're wired? That's still to be determined. But I would argue that as I've been doing this, I've been feeling better. Uh, I've literally seen my waistline change with no other change other than that. My exercise routine, calorie intake, food has been the same. I've just started eating some fruit before each meal and I've been feeling good. Uh, and i 'm digesting food better, and my stomach is flatter so that 's my answer to fruit to to get you there so you know to re- all of what we said today in a nutshell comes back to one thing, which is that a lot of the questions we ask are with the assumption that the label of what we think we 're getting is accurate. When we go to the grocery store and we buy bread or you buy a banana, or you buy a cup of yogurt, you're treating it as per what that label says when that's really not what you're buying. When you're buying that yogurt, is it actually yogurt that is a fermented dairy which has the gut right bacteria in it that will actually help your gut? Or is it just skim milk that has been thickened? What did you actually buy? When you buy that fruit, did you actually buy something that was ripened on a tree where the soil was flourishing with minerals and nutrition that was plucked at the right time and provided to you or was it grown in a greenhouse with just enough to keep it alive void of what it was supposed to have when you buy poultry and and chicken are you buying something that is translating and transporting the nutrition of the earth of where it's eating you know natural foods and seeds etc and putting that into its body for you to then consume and transport even through its eggs that proper nutrition or are you buying something that was locked in a cage full of stress high cortisol levels um, surrounded by viruses and disease and fed absolute nonsense and that's what is being translated into the food you eat when you're buying bread are you actually buying an ancient grain one of the four or five grains that originally is what bread was made out of, where the protein levels are high and the fiber levels are high and it's a dense, nutritious, uh, rich meal, or are you buying a fluffy white toy, which is really a luxury for you to enjoy the moment as opposed to derive nutrition from it. So you have to ask these questions when you think about nutrition. Broccoli is not broccoli. Bread is not bread. A tomato is not a tomato just because it's called that doesn't mean it is still what it used to be so of all of what we said again understand who you are genetically so that you can personalize your diet more but even if you're not doing that understand that what you're buying is not what you think you're buying put in the effort to find the sources and i wish i could tell everybody where to go but it's depending on where you live it's always different but the option is there I would argue if you're in your city if you're in, the, in a small town it doesn't matter where you are there's enough people already creating demand where the options are there if it means on the weekend driving to a farmer's market to buy it proper to buy it organic to find that source if it means on the weekend driving to that Mennonite farm where they still do it the way it's supposed to be done you know put in the effort because the fuel that you're fueling yourself with is the choice between disease or no disease The thing that you decide to eat, you're also deciding whether to get sick or not. So put in the effort and the time to make sure that you're making the right choice and you're eating the thing for which the choice is no disease. So we'll see you again next time, guys. We're going to go into one last Q&A and thank you again for joining us. Keep your questions coming. We really enjoy giving you the feedback you're actually asking for. You can reach out to me on social, Uh, You can email us through the company, but thank you again, guys. We'll see you next time.